The Inflation Reduction Act, signed into law recently by President Biden, includes a book minimum tax. This is raising the eyebrows of accountants everywhere. This new policy, a 15% tax applied to the financial statement income that companies report to their investors, is one of the law's largest revenue raisers. It joins a Rolodex of other minimum taxes for multinational corporations. But will all these new minimum taxes actually achieve their intended goals? And more importantly, how will the accounting work as companies navigate these new complex rules and tax increases? Hello, and welcome to The Deduction, a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, Communications Manager here at the Tax Foundation. There's been a lot of tax news in the news recently, specifically when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, on this show, we often talk about tax policy. In the past few weeks, we've been talking about tax administration as well. This week, we're going to look at another side of the tax world, if you will, and that's accounting, because we're not accountants here at the Tax Foundation, but we do have some accounting friends that can come on and help us out here. Uh, so this week, we are joined by Scott Dyring. He's a professor of accounting down at Duke University, as well as Daniel Bunn, our executive vice president and a global tax expert here at the Tax Foundation. Scott, Daniel, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jesse. Of course. Now, Scott, before we even get into the plethora of taxes we'll be talking about today, which I should mention off the bat, uh, any one of these taxes we're talking about, we could probably commit one episode. But, you know, we have 30 minutes. So we're going to go into as much detail as we can while still making it, you know, accessible for you, our listeners. But Scott, just before we get into this taxes, tell us why tax and accounting differences matter. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. As an accountant, uh, we tend to think about income and the nuances of how to calculate income all the time. And for the typical listener, it's easy to think that there should just be one income number. Income is income. But it turns out when one thinks about calculating income, um, there's lots of assumptions that have to be made, lots of choices that need to be made. And the types of choices that get made depend on the objective of the user of that number. And so as an accountant, accountants are generally trying to calculate an income number, which is useful for investors as they try to determine how to allocate their scarce investment resources. Whereas the taxing authorities and the policymakers are trying to create an income number that is useful to them as they try to achieve their objectives. And those objectives can be kind of varying, but they include things like raising revenue, um, encouraging or discouraging certain types of behavior, or redistribution of income. Or as uh, some of my friends like to say, uh, they also like to choose a number that might help them get reelected in the future. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. Um, so could you explain quickly to, because I know this phrase will probably get thrown a lot around today, what, what GAAP is, G-A-A-P? Yeah. So GAAP, G-A-A-P, um, is, stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And those principles are promulgated in the United States by the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or the FASB, or many people shorten that to call it the FASB. <laughs> Gotcha. And Daniel, could you, could you explain why uh, gaps in the equation right now, especially as it's relating to the Inflation Reduction Act and maybe things going on with the OECD? The main reason is that folks who design our tax rules that Scott was talking about, how they may have different objectives and different intentions with an income number than the accountants. Those folks who design tax rules are interested now in the accounting definition of income and wanting to create new tax bases 
that rely on those accounting numbers. So this is both in the context of the Inflation Reduction Act and with the new global minimum tax, both of those policies use accounting numbers to some extent and in different ways because policymakers chose not to change the normal tax rules and instead start with a different set of numbers. So we're dealing with lots of different sets of data here, and that's something that companies have to deal with and the government, too, when it comes to making sure you know the law is being followed and applied here. Scott, sh- should we want to tax gap income? Is that something that lawmakers should be focused on? Uh, what, like, How would a company respond if we started taxing gap income or how do we even tax gap income right now? Yeah. So as an accountant, the short answer to your question, to your question you know, should we tax gap income? The answer is no. And the simple reason is simply this. Um, financial accounting income is designed to try to capture some um, notion of economic income, which is useful to investors. And so when you just take as a simple example, a company purchases an asset, that asset has a useful life. um, And to sort of capture the useful life, the company might depreciate that asset in equal amounts over the course of its useful life to reflect the fact that it gets used a little bit at a time each year over a certain amount of years. For tax purposes, the government might have a different objective and the objective might be encourage um, purchases of machinery to stimulate the economy and provide employment. And so they might say to the company, well, we'll allow you to depreciate the entire cost of the machine in one year. That will make the machine less costly to purchase, which might encourage more purchases of machinery and stimulate the economy, mm-hmm. but it doesn't map the economic reality of the life of that machine. Because the purposes are different, the amount of expense that gets recorded in the two sets of books are different, and we end up with different income numbers. It's not that one is bad or one is good, it's that they were created for different purposes. And accountants generally fear the idea that financial accounting numbers might be contaminated by um, objectives that are different from the idea of providing information that captures economic income. And the idea that tax motivations might um, contaminate the accounting numbers doesn't make very many accountants happy. (laughs) Are there any specific taxes you're alluding to there that are kind of stoking fears among accountants? Yeah. So in the, um, the new IRA that was passed, um, the inflation reduction act, there's a a tax that is called, I don't know exactly what they're calling it now, but it's Mm -hmm. basically the alternative minimum tax on financial accounting income or the alternative tax on gap. And that tax is in principle, a tax on financial accounting income if the company's effective tax rate based on taxable income is not high enough. And one concern is that companies will then start meddling with their financial accounting income in order to not cross the crucial thresholds, or alternatively, that politicians will start putting pressure on the Financial Accounting Standards Board to alter the definition of generally accepted accounting principles to achieve the political objectives that they have in mind. Mm. 
Now, Daniel, um, could you talk about maybe other tax pieces out there that could feed into this fear that accountants have as well? Given these taxes, not just on incomes, not just on sales, but truly every piece of a company's puzzle. So what else is like at play right now that companies are going to have to start dealing with or already are dealing with? Yeah, I think with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, one of the key things that we're looking at is the impact on uh, stock based compensation. Um, So this is compensation that some companies provide to their employees in the form of equity, you know, uh, you know, shares of stock in the company. Um, the accounting rules around that, uh, you know, create uh, essentially a gap, like, you know, not the GAAP gap, but a GAP gap uh, between the way the tax rules and the accounting rules uh, treat the deductions for that deferred uh, compensation through through stock. Now, what you could do if you're a company and you're worried about a low effective tax rate because of the way you compensate your employees you could change the way you compensate your employees. You know, is that avoiding the tax? Well, you pay more tax through the normal tax code and then you don't pay this minimum tax. You know, there's all sorts of these these levers that uh, I think are going to be be tricky. You know, with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act, it's, you know, a handful, I would say, of levers that companies may want to play with. But when it comes to things like the global minimum tax, I think the number of levers that companies might want to play with between their tax numbers and their accounting numbers, that field expands. Okay. And Scott, would you say, or Daniel for this one too, would you say that these minimum taxes are just being introduced so often now because companies are applying different methods to define income or, you know, to make things work? Do you think this is a reaction to that or it's the inverse and companies are doing that because these new minimum taxes are at play now? That's a really, really interesting question. Um, I mean, my observation is that the political motivation for the alternative minimum tax in the IRA Mm -hmm. is driven by something that happens each year, which is certain groups will publish a list of firms that paid very low or possibly no tax in the U.S., but reported high income to their shareholders. And what is missing from those reports is generally an explanation of why that happens. And in many of those cases, the underlying reasons for why the companies reported no or low tax, but still had high financial accounting income is something Mm -hmm. unusually benign or kind of incidental that occurs because the company has done exactly what was expected based on the enacted tax laws. So the company claimed accelerated depreciation deductions. The company contributed large amounts to its pension uh, funds. The company um, might have done something like lost income in the past and uses those losses to offset profits in the existing year. And kind of a piece of evidence of this is in generally speaking, the companies that have low taxes in one year often don't appear on those lists year after year after year because it's just some transitory thing that happens. So um, I think the optics of a situation where a company pays a low amount of tax but has high reported income to shareholders is politically motivating and is creating a situation where 
um, in order to appeal to a certain class of voters, the politicians feel like they can make these changes and it, you know, may or may not have an actual impact. Mm. Time will tell. Daniel, anything that yeah. I'll jump in there when it comes to the global minimum tax. Uh, I think some of those same motivations that Scott mentioned, the political motivations about companies reporting different numbers, uh, you know, what their effective tax rate might be significantly low, but, you know, it's a transitory issue. You know, that that's part of the conversation at the international level on uh, the global minimum tax. But another piece is that when you're talking about a true global minimum tax, and you recognize that countries have different tax laws, you know, all over the world, uh, the policymakers wanted to start from something that's relatively consistent. Not that all accounting rules are the same everywhere because they're, they're not, but there's a lot of consistency um, because the purpose of these numbers for investors um, is so, uh, so critical. Mm-hmm. The folks looking at designing the global minimum tax said, hey, we don't have to harmonize all these different tax rules. We can just start with accounting rules that are relatively harmonized and then make adjustments to that. Now, that doesn't make the accounting community any happier than the IRA book minimum tax, um, but that's the justification um, that's been used. <laughs> and the mm-hmm. challenge from a policy perspective is, okay, well, we don't want to actually tax the income reported on financial statements because there are you know problems with that so making adjustments to those numbers to make it look a little bit more like a tax base and then recognizing that there's still conflicts with the actual tax base and the global minimum tax base so um, that's that's kind of you know a, a different approach but there's still some of the underlying motivations And if you don't mind, let me just follow up on what Daniel said. This is sort of a fascinating thing to think about. Right. So kind of before, you know, a year ago, there were kind of two accounting systems that a U.S. company would have to deal with, the financial accounting system and the tax accounting system. Now, with the IRA being passed and very likely the adoption of the global minimum taxes that are part of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, there's going to be in some ways, for accounting systems. And here's why. The IRA is not actually a tax purely on financial accounting income. (laughs) It's a tax on adjusted financial accounting income. And so now just if you're in the U.S., you have to have gap income and tax income and adjusted financial accounting income. And then to comply with the Pillar 2 rules, you're going to have to have an adjusted, a different adjustment to your financial accounting income for each of your different subsidiaries, which really, in essence, creates four different income numbers. And as you can see very quickly, it's becoming a complicated mess. And all your students, Scott, become that much more employable. Yes, more employable. And um, it gives us as professors far more things to research. <laughs> so busy season for accountants is turning into busier season. Yes, um, I feel too like, you know, how Google always releases those like maps at the end of the year showing like what the most search words for. I feel like if you've bundled everyone in the tax community together, minimum tax is probably gonna be the biggest one this year. So on that, can you talk about, Scott, uh, the book minimum tax and the IRA and kind of how those mechanics work? I know we got into it a little bit, but just delve a little further on that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, of course, the details can be 
at, at some level are still yet to be determined because certain things in the provision will say the secretary shall determine and, and some of that will come. But what we know so far is something like this. A company will take its financial accounting income, but it won't take its pure financial accounting income. It will make adjustments. And those adjustments will be for things like depreciation and um, certain tax credits like research and experimentation credits and so forth. And they'll adjust their financial accounting income. And what's interesting to me about that is that's kind of what taxable income already is, but you just don't take as many adjustments with this new um, alternative minimum tax on gap. You take some adjustments, but not as many. And then essentially the firm has to determine whether or not it is kind of uh, in the pool of firms that will be subjected to this, which essentially means do you have this new adjusted gap income? Uh, I think it's a billion dollars a year on average for the past three years. And if you're qualified, then you're in the pool. And if you're in the pool, then you kind of calculate um, whether or not you paid enough tax using your financial or using your taxable income. And if that effective tax rate is lower than 15%, then you might end up subjected to this alternative minimum tax, which would be sort of the difference between what you paid under the regular tax rules and what you would pay with this alternative income number multiplied by 15%. And you, you know, pay that additional amount. And there's tons of like weird little nuances because now you have to think about things like tax loss carry forwards. And there will be like strange, like alternative minimum tax loss carry forwards, which will be applied and just additional things to think about to calculate how much alternative minimum tax one actually owes. Mm. So for accountants right now, what's kind of like their mindset? Is it they are just relearning everything they thought they knew or is it wait till regs come out? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think at some level there's a wait and see what exactly the details have will be. But I also think that many companies are going to start planning immediately for things like this. Imagine a company whose income will be very close to the threshold of uh, the, the billion dollars. Um, it's very conceivable that companies that are near that threshold will start planning right now to make sure that their income will fall below the threshold mm. to make sure they're not an included company. That's not hard to imagine at all. And there will be other companies that will start thinking about, are there ways that we should organize our, you know, change our organization so that we don't qualify or we do qualify or how do we carry forward losses and so forth. So the planning is beginning immediately, but some of the details are not entirely known. And Daniel, last question in this first section here, can you kind of explain how that's impacting with the OECD rules going on and why even financial reporting is being used as we're talking, you know, through pillar one and pillar two? Yeah, I, I think we'll get um, mm -hmm. a little bit more into the, the comparisons uh, in, in a moment. But the challenge for uh, uh, companies like Scott was saying with their multiple books, there are companies right now, even though countries haven't signed into law, there's no country that signed into law on this global minimum tax, but the model rules are out there and companies are looking across their systems, across where they have uh, income and investment and trying to pull together that new set of financial accounting books um, or all you know adjusted financial uh, accounts uh, to be able to be ready when you know something comes through uh, as you know something signed into law 
uh, that they would be ready to comply with it. And it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. But it is clearly, from my perspective, another layer of complexity on top of, you know, existing cross-border tax rules. We're not repealing any complicated cross-border tax rules in this. This is just another layer. Just another paint of coat on... It's great. We'll be right back. Hi there. We've been doing the deduction podcast here for a while. We want to hear from you, our listeners, about questions that you want answered. Are there tax implications to student loan forgiveness? What's going on with ballot measures this year? Is Congress ever going to bring back the larger child tax credit? Whatever your pressing tax questions are, we want to help answer them. So drop us a note at taxfoundation.org slash mailbag. And soon we'll host a mailbag episode helping to get those questions answered. Once again, that link is taxfoundation.org slash mailbag. Now back to the show. All right. And we are back. This section is called Myths and Misconception. We tackled some common uh, talking points that we hear during these debates and kind of get into the details of whether or not they are correct or if there's some missing context. Uh, so, Scott, so myth number one when it comes to this debate here, proponents of these you know, new minimum taxes are going to say these ideas at least have been around for a long time. They're not cooking up something from scratch. These are things they've been talking about. These are things they've been wanting to do. People should be prepared, and there's not much messing up the implementation of them. Are they right? Uh, it's hard to say, but here's some things that we do know. Um, there was a alternative minimum tax kind of based on financial accounting income in the Tax Reform Act of 1986. It did not have a very long life. I think it was complicated and didn't achieve its objectives. Um, the other thing that we know is this act, as I read it, at least the IRA specifically, is not going to solve the problem that I think the politicians mm-hmm. would like to solve, which is to create a world where no profitable company you know, reports zero tax. It's entirely possible and, in fact, likely that even with this alternative minimum tax, there will be companies who report large amounts of financial accounting income, gap income to their shareholders, and in fact, don't pay tax. And that's happening because they, in fact, are not taxing financial accounting income. They're going to tax an adjusted financial accounting income, which includes things like depreciation deductions and R&D credits and so forth. And some companies have enough of those that they will offset almost their entire income. And so they will have no alternative minimum tax. They will have no financial accounting or excuse me, they'll have no tax on kind of their regular taxable income and they will include or, or report high levels of financial accounting to their shareholders. So it's not really going to solve the problem. Will it raise some revenue? Sure, it'll raise a little bit of revenue, but it's not clear that that's exactly what the objective was. Really, what you're saying is like, we have a complex system that could create a tax company situation to appear as zero and we're just adding more complexity and it's going to keep that reality going. Yeah, it's going to bump some firms out of that list, the naughty list, <laughs> right? Like an example would be Amazon who, you know, for a few years didn't pay very much tax or maybe no tax at all. And they had like 11 billion of income. And that was in large part driven by stock option or not stock option in their case, restricted stock, but share-based compensation differences. And because share-based compensation is not an adjustment in this new alternative minimum tax, Amazon probably would have paid more tax. 
But a, an alternative would be someone like FedEx, who also paid very low tax. And one of the big drivers of that was contributions to the pension account and a lot of capital investment that gave them big accelerated depreciation deductions. And they probably still would have not paid tax even under the new system. Hmm. Now, Daniel, misconception number two. So this new book minimum tax in the IRA, it's the same as the OECD rules. Yes or no? <laughs> no. Uh, this this is very different. A defiant no. <laughs> uh, very different uh, from the OECD rules. Now, uh, it, people get tripped up about this all the time because it starts with financial accounts and it's a 15% rate. Um, but in between that and, you know, kind of reality uh, is a lot of a lot of differences. I think one of the biggest differences, and this is a difference that, you know, kind of appeared on the radar um, last fall and last winter, is the difference between the way Congress wanted to protect uh, tax credits from the bite of the minimum tax um, that's included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and that is not necessarily the case for uh, all tax credits with respect to the global minimum tax. Now, there are some special kind of tax credits that the global minimum tax does like, um, but the Inflation Reduction Act is more generous um, towards tax credits uh, in general. I think another feature is that this Inflation Reduction Act um, minimum tax applies to a company's worldwide income. So all the income wherever you are in it around the world. Um, and the global minimum tax, this this may sound like a nuance, but it's, it's a big difference. The global minimum tax um, applied rules kind of um, country by country. So you would calculate your additional tax paid for each jurisdiction rather than lumping all your income together and then figuring out what your additional tax under the minimum regime uh, is. There are you know, several other differences, but those, those are the big ones. Mm-hmm. Scott, anything to add to that? No, I mean, I think what Daniel is saying is sort of really crucial, right? Calculating something on a consolidated basis versus on a country by country basis is going to make a really big difference for many companies. And it's a much more complicated um, data uh, collection and generation problem for the firms. So that's, that's something that's going to be interesting to see. I guess one other really strange thing to think about is the accountants love to think about these things called deferred tax assets and deferred tax liabilities. And and they're calculated by essentially thinking about the book value of, this is like on the balance sheet, the book value of your asset for financial accounting versus the book value of your asset for tax purposes. And then you sort of take the difference between those two and you multiply it by a tax rate to get what's called a deferred tax asset or a deferred tax liability. Now the problem is there are various tax rates floating around. There's not just like the statutory tax rate. And so this requires for the purposes of, for example, the pillar two calculations, the use of maybe a different tax rate than would be the normal statutory tax rate. You might use 15% instead of 21%. But the financial accounting guidance sometimes doesn't necessarily allow you to do that. So for financial accounting purposes, you may still be stuck with the 21%. And there's going to be all kinds of strange nuances in terms of how deferred tax assets and liabilities are dealt with in terms of calculating effective rates to determine if a company owes additional tax for these minimum taxes. And that's going to be a really big complication that the accountants are going to have to deal with, not only in terms of what do they report in their financial statements, but also in terms of whether or not their effective tax rates 
put them in the bucket of firms that are subjected to the minimum taxes. Now, uh, final thoughts here. This has been a really, really interesting discussion. I think it's important, too, that we do bring on accountants from time to time because, you know, that's what is missing from our you know personal office. We're tax policy people. We're not accounting people. But Scott, on behalf of accountants everywhere, if you were to write an open letter to the new minimum tax, this complex thing, what would you say the one thing you want the minimum tax to know is from accountants? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> um, repeal already. You know, it's just there. Just repeal. I mean, the interesting thing is, like, I've written a couple of times in the Wall Street Journal about this when it was sort of being considered. And my take was this is not a good policy. I'm not opposed to raising taxes on corporations. I'm not opposed to trying to raise more revenue from corporations if that's what the politicians want to do. But there is, in fact, a way to do that, which is to fix the things in the existing tax code that are causing companies to not pay what the politicians want them to pay. And if when they go to do that, there's not political will to change those things. So, for example, if there's no political will to limit depreciation deductions, maybe that's because the depreciation deductions are achieving something that is socially desirable. And it seems to me like it makes a lot more sense to do the hard work of actually legislating and governing in a way that is much more efficient and sensible than just saying we don't have the political will to do the thing that's the right thing to do. So instead, we'll slap on a Band-Aid and we'll suffer the economic consequences of that kind mm. of terrible fix. Daniel, I would say I have the last word. But I think we know your thoughts on this. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. G give, give us, on behalf of the tax policy community now, what's, what's your final message to the minimum tax as it moves forward? Yeah, I'm not a fan of minimum taxes. I'll, I'll echo uh, Scott's uh, uh, argument on that. I, I wrote uh, in a piece earlier this year that um, if you're pushing for a minimum tax, that means you've already given up. Um, you've already said, oh, well, we're not actually going to push for tax reform in the direction of either raising or lowering taxes, you've just given up and we're going to take a shortcut and hope that the shortcut works out regardless of the complexity and the administrative costs. So, um, yeah, I'm not a fan of this policy. I, I think in some ways we ended up with something better than the original proposal, but it's still kind of a mess. Progress, but still a lot, a lot of work to do to get our tax code to a simpler place. So, Scott, what's next for you? I am assuming school starts this week or next for... All the what's Blue Devils? That's Duke, right? Uh, yeah. So students are coming back. Uh, classes are starting. For in my particular case, I won't teach until the spring. So I'm just trying to do research, which is perfect because there's plenty to think about this fall, mm -hmm. and we'll be talking about and thinking about uh, both this uh, IRA, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, and also what's going on with the OECD and the the. Pillar one and pillar two. I read your bio. Um, financial accounting for me was like the easiest class I took in undergrad and managerial accounting was one of the hardest. So I uh, wish I would have had you. <laughs> yeah, managerial and tax. That's what I, that's what I teach. <laughs> yeah. Um, and where can people find you uh, online or elsewhere if they want to stay in touch with your work? Uh, yeah, you can. I'm, I'm a, I, I do post on Twitter occasionally um, at Scott Diring and then uh, a colleague of mine, Jeff Hoops um, at the University of North Carolina. The two of us have a podcast called Tax Chats, which you can find on any of the major podcast distribution um, forums or platforms. And uh, you can you can kind of figure out what we're thinking by listening to the Tax Chats podcast. It's a great listen. Daniel, how about you? Where can people stay in touch? 
Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Daniel D. Bunn. I'm also on Tax Foundation's blog. Uh, and uh, I think in the next couple of weeks, going to have uh, a piece on uh, personal income tax inflation adjustments and whether those are common or not in Europe. Uh, and then also watching the UK race for the next prime minister and what that will mean for uh, tax policy. Just a little race over there. We'll see how it goes. But all right, Scott, Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carvajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and The Deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation, as well as on Twitter at DeductionPod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.